The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Rich. Welcome back to FertiliPod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're exploring what it's like to operate a fertility center in the COVID-19 era. For that, we've invited Dr. Thomas Molinaro. Dr. Molinaro is an assistant professor for the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and has a master's in clinical epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the clinical director of RMA of New Jersey's Basking Ridge office. Dr. Molinaro, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Andres. It's a pleasure to join you today. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an enormous impact on the world, obviously with the tens of millions of cases so far, and now close to a million dead. Beyond people who've actually contracted the virus, the resulting effect of the pandemic on day-to-day life has been very significant for everybody. In our field, it has definitely affected how we do things, both from the patient's perspective, as well as from the professional's point of view. And we wanted to dedicate an episode to this because the pandemic is probably far from over, and we are likely going to be dealing with its aftermath for many more months or longer. Let's jump right in. What do you think the overall impact of the pandemic has been on patients who need assisted reproduction, and how has their situation been unique? Um, I think you know the COVID nineteen pandemic has been challenging for everybody. Um, in particular, for fertility patients, there is so much uh, that is time related and uh, without a, an ability to reschedule very easily. So I think um, for the most part, they've been particularly stressed. You know, the infertility journey is one that takes you know, months, hopefully not too many months, but it's definitely one that builds momentum. And I think that you know, COVID-19 has presented particularly uh, you know, some particular challenges with respect to delays and um, what that means in terms of their progress to the, the you know, pregnancy to, to success, basically. So um, at RMA of New Jersey, we have been fortunate in that we've had very few delays. We've managed to stay open throughout the pandemic, taking the right precautions and making sure that we keep our patients and our staff as safe as possible while preventing the majority of delays that I think many infertility patients suffered through, particularly in spring and early summer. You said you mentioned from spring to early summer. How would you say the usual care has changed since this all started in March, um, and and what has how has that evolved a little bit until today? Well, I think the the management of patients, uh, infer, the management of infertility patients in the COVID era has been particularly um, challenging, given the frequency of visits and the time constraints involved. We've tried our best to maintain the CDC protocols and keep abreast of all the latest developments. 
we've managed to uh, stay open throughout the pandemic by encouraging social distancing. We were very early to implement um, universal masking for patients and staff alike. I think that was a very big part of uh, being able to stay open, uh, particularly in March and April. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough that we had access to the right PPE and our patients uh, were very cooperative in terms of um, spacing out morning monitoring. We tried to, uh, we actually doubled our morning monitoring hours. So uh, in order to have more time and spread people out, um, we went to an alphabet-based uh, scheduling system where uh, you know, half of the alphabet came early and half of the alphabet came later. And I have to say that patients were very cooperative in, th in that way. Um, and, and ultimately, we've managed to leverage telehealth for a lot of uh, our consultations. So while in-person visits are, are unavoidable for things like blood work and ultrasounds and procedures, for consultations, we use telehealth quite effectively particularly early on um, when there was so much that was unknown. And that enabled us to prepare patients for their visits. They were able to get in and out of the office quicker because they had their questions answered in advance. Um, we set a whole uh, timetable for an evaluation for a telehealth patient where basically uh, we would do the consultation and then have them come in for one visit that allowed them to get their blood work their ultrasound, sometimes even a saline ultrasound or an HSG in that one visit. So with that one visit, they were able to um, have the majority of their evaluation completed. And we were able to do it with appropriate social distancing, spacing out patients, um, and all the right PPE to keep everyone safe. And we've had a very low rate of positive patients. Um, since uh, early uh, April, we started uh, universal testing at the beginning of all treatment cycles. So every patient undergoing a treatment cycle, whether it's a, a Clomid cycle or an IVF cycle or a, a frozen transfer cycle, has uh, a viral RNA test uh, by a nasal swab uh, at the beginning of the cycle. And then uh, if they're having anesthesia uh, in New Jersey, if you're going to have anesthesia, you have to have a, a COVID test within six days. So patients um, undergoing uh, hysteroscopies or egg retrievals have another COVID test at that point. Um, and we've had very, very few positives, relatively speaking, to the number of tests that we've done. Um, and we've been very fortunate, I think, that uh, we've taken all the right um, precautionary measures. Um, our nurses call most patients the day before to find out if they've had any symptoms, to see if they've had any significant exposures. And we've tried to keep people out of the office if they're sick or if they've had a significant exposure that um, warrants quarantining. Now, granted, those protocols have changed over time as we've understood more about what constitutes a a high-risk exposure, and also with the idea of universal masking. So if people are having interactions with COVID-positive persons, but both parties are masked, it's no longer considered a, a high-risk event in, in, most, in most scenarios. So um, we've been very, very fortunate. Our patients have been extremely cooperative, and everybody understands that these are precautions that, that are unavoidable, and they need to be implemented universally in order to make sure that the clinic can stay open and that everybody can make progress in achieving their, their dreams. Um, you know, we just looked recently, probably about uh, three weeks ago, I looked and we discharged about 1,500 pregnant patients since March. So between March and the beginning of August, we discharged 1,500 pregnant patients, which I think is amazing in, in any time, let alone a time where there's a, a viral pandemic that has affected so many people um, in so many ways. Yeah, so people are still getting pregnant even if there is COVID. <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, you, we we're mentioning a little bit about how, you know, everything you're offering to make patients safe and to make patients feel safe. Um, there's also a lot we're obviously asking of patients and you, you keep saying that this is a collaborative effort and this is, you know, we're kind of in this together and everybody has that, that idea that, like you said, it's unavoidable and the sooner we get it over with the better. Um, how, when you mentioned about testing and you require patients to be tested, you mentioned about the need for six days within, uh, within six days of anesthesia. Um, how frequently do you test patients? If they're negative today and they have to keep coming for the next week or two, do you retest them at some point? Do you ever reconsider testing them? How does that work? I think um, for most patients, one test at the beginning of the cycle um, is has been enough for us. Um, you know, we we test people from month to month, and we haven't had patients um, pop up positive in between. And you would think, you know, if we're seeing somebody for a, a cycle start every four weeks, that we'd catch some you know some positives in between. And we've had very few. Um, I think that's also because we've done a lot of symptom-based and exposure-based management. So, you know, if somebody has symptoms, we require them to go get tested at an urgent, you know, urgent care or with their primary physician so that we can find out what's happening. You know, we have canceled cycles, no doubt about it, um, you know, for patients who develop symptoms or who test positive. Um, early on, when there was a lack of testing availability, we had to basically cancel based on, on symptoms in a lot of cases. But now that we have more testing and other things uh, that allow us to to monitor things closer. We're we're fortunate, um, you know. I think that uh, patients are also just smarter about their exposures. Um, you know, I think early on there was a lot of uncertainty. People weren't quite sure how you could catch COVID. Now we understand so much more. That, you know that it's a respiratory illness. That it is, um, you know, one that's mostly transmitted. Uh, through the air. And so if, if everybody wears their mask, then there's a lot less risk for, um, for transmission. And, and our patients have proven to us that they, they can be responsible and they've reported the right exposures. And, and we've been very, very lucky. We, we, you also said that number there was about 1,500 patients that have been discharged mm -hmm. since March uh, pregnant. That obviously goes with the whole uncertainty of what that means in the time of COVID. There are, there were in the very beginning, a lot of studies on whether the viral particles were found on different uh, fluids, on different parts of the body, including the ovaries, mm -hmm. sperm, so forth. Um, what, what is currently known about the effect of, of COVID on reproduction, not necessarily on fertility itself, but on outcomes after that? And how is that uncertainty that obviously all these patients must have, like we do, um, how is that conveyed to patients in a way that it, you know, doesn't alarm everybody? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, patients are inundated with information on a daily basis, whether it's television or the internet, patients come in with a lot of information already. So um, they're, they're pretty well educated about a lot of these things. And, and every time I have a conversation with a patient, they seem to already know what I'm going to say. Um, but for the most part, the evidence has been reassuring that patients who get pregnant are not at a higher risk of contracting COVID. Um, you know, the data regarding this particular coronavirus is still relatively sparse, but in general, coronaviruses have been around for a long time and they don't seem to increase the risk of, of birth defects in utero, right? We know things like cytomegalovirus, um, you know, rubella, these are things that can, um, cause birth defects, but coronaviruses traditionally have not been found to be teratogenic. 
Um, and I think that there's now some data to suggest that pregnant patients who contract COVID may have slightly more respiratory complications, but in general still do okay, as long as they're managed appropriately and, and, um, and as long as they take the right precautions. So the take home advice for patients is that, um, number one, we feel our office is safe. We're screening everybody. We're taking the right precautions. Um, they're probably more likely to catch COVID at the grocery store than they are in our office. Um, but that being said, if they do get pregnant, if they do become pregnant, then we recommend that they follow all the universal precautions. They limit their exposures. They, um, you know, wear a mask whenever they're in public or especially in closed um, areas inside and that they have discussions with their OBGYN, particularly in the second and third trimesters where um, pregnant patients seem to be a little more susceptible about things they can do to mitigate their risk. But I think the medical community has become a little more comfortable with managing um, COVID patients in general and, and managing um, pregnant patients um, as well. And, and we've seen that the majority of pregnant women who contract COVID are actually asymptomatic, right? There's a few studies now that just look at um, the rates of COVID positive patients showing up in, in um, areas of high prevalence, and the majority of them were asymptomatic. I think over 80% were asymptomatic in, in the studies that I recall. So, you know, most pregnant patients are going to do okay. That being said, they should do everything possible to limit their exposures. In terms of, obviously, there's got to have to be some some tough calls every now and then and some things that must have been um, a little more challenging. I can imagine some. Um, but what, what would you say have been one or two examples of things that have been a little complicated? Or um, I think we've been pretty fortunate in that the majority of cycles that we've had to cancel, we've canceled early in the cycle before patients have gotten too far along, right? The advantage of doing the, the COVID swab uh, at the start of medications is that we get results back typically within 36 to 48 hours. And at that point, you know, they haven't spent a lot of time or effort um, in the cycle. So when we do get positives there, um, canceling them early is easy and patients are very understanding of that. And, you know, they're obviously concerned that they tested positive anyway, and, and they want to make sure that they're healthy before they go through it. Um, we have had a couple of cases, particularly early on, where people develop symptoms later in the cycle, and we had to treat them as presumed positives. Um, and, you know, there's not too much you can do with somebody who's already been triggered, who has a high estrogen and a lot of follicles. You can't exactly cancel them the day of their egg retrieval when they wake up with a fever. So we've had a couple of cases like that, and we just managed to um, isolate them protect the staff involved with all the right PPE. We have N95 masks. We have the right um, uh, setup for a COVID positive patient to be um, retrieved. And then, you know, the room turned over in, a, in the right way so that you, you sterilize it and, and the next um, you know, patient can come in safely. So we've been fortunate um, in those cases, but it's not to say that we didn't sweat it out at the time when you have somebody walk in with a fever and, and on the morning of their egg retrieval and you don't really have a choice but to proceed. Um, I think, you know, employees are nervous, patients are nervous. Um, we, we've been very fortunate. Our, our employees, our physicians, our nurses, our medical assistants, they've all done an incredible job um, showing up every day for work um, with so much uncertainty, um, especially, um, you know, not knowing whether they're putting themselves at risk to contract the virus. Um, but, but, you know, they've shown up and they've, they've been an outstanding asset for us. And, and we've managed to um, not just stay open, but stay busy. And, you know, we've been um, uh, very fortunate throughout this entire uh, pandemic. 
from a, you were mentioning kind of the, the feeling of the employees and how everybody is stressed about there's not just the patients and obviously no, nobody wants to get the disease um from the perspective of making sure from a management perspective making sure everybody feels safe speaking about your employees now um what what specific measures do you take and when do you implement them obviously this has been a very changing thing since it, it all started um how do you choose what to implement and what you know or what you have a reasonable knowledge that it works? Well, I mean, I think we've looked to the um, the CDC for the majority of our guidance. Um, you know, their website has some pretty clear documentation of how to manage uh, exposure in healthcare workers, uh, along with, you know, ways to mitigate that exposure, um, you know, by implementing uh, cleaning protocols, uh, spacing out of patients, um, you know, the correct PPE. And, um, and so we've done, we've done a great job, I think, on that front. Um, mostly it's been about trying to limit uh, the uh, potential uh, patients who might be COVID positive to try to prevent them from coming into the office to begin with. We're fortunate in that we're not an urgent center, we're not an ER, you know, we don't need to see COVID positive patients. And so if we you know, um, practice the, the correct social distancing, if we um, are um, uh, keeping patients out of the office who've had exposures or symptoms, then we just limit the, the prevalence of the disease in our office, and, and that, that makes sense. Um, the other thing that we have done is we've done antibody testing on our employees now a few times, um, and um, we've had right around 10% of employees test positive, which is about what I think uh, we've seen in the New York, New Jersey area for all individuals. So it's not that our employees are at a higher risk. Um, you know, going through the people who tested positive, almost all of them had exposures uh, outside of work that we that we noted, um, whether it was a, a family member, a spouse, somebody in their household, um, or a, um, you know some other exposure. And we had very few um, that that we couldn't trace. I, I actually don't know if there's one that we couldn't trace the exposure back to some somewhere outside of the office. So, um, you know, we do feel that employees are, are safe in our in our offices and that um, you know, they can keep each other safe by practicing the right social distancing and, and you know, using masks and et cetera. And they've been very, very um, agreeable and everybody has, has been um, on the same page with respect to, to keeping the office safe because we, we want to keep the office open. We want to keep uh, the availability for patients and to be able to continue treating patients and, and help them along their infertility journey. That's right. And one of the things that, that I think is challenging, and I, I was a resident not very long ago, and we had the situation where, you know, a couple people came positive with COVID at the same time, and that affected at that time quarantining a lot of the people they were working with. And that kind of takes out a significant part of the team at the same time. Um, do you have any contingency plans or anything of that nature? What happens if there is an outbreak, so to speak, and it is traced to within? Or what happens if a big part of the team needs to be quarantined for two weeks at the same time? Right. Well, I mean, I think that's something that we were very afraid of, particularly at the beginning, that we'd have an outbreak in an office and we'd have to shut down an office. And I think that that was basically our plan was that if we had an outbreak in one of our satellite offices, one of our monitoring offices, then you know, we may be forced to close that office for two weeks while it gets cleaned and while the staff recover. Um, you know, I think that, again, 
the CDC guidance here has changed dramatically. And so at the beginning, um, what constituted a high-risk exposure is, was different from what it is now. And so if we have a COVID-positive employee in, in an office, as long as they've had their mask on, then the other employees in the office should be fine and they're still considered relatively low-risk exposures. Um, you know, we've also tried to allow uh, employees who can work from home to work from home. That has the advantage of spacing out who's in the office. So there's more effective social distancing for employees. It also means that there's more people who are out of the office if there is an exposure, right? So if half of your staff is working from home, only half of them is gonna get exposed on that day um, when a COVID positive um, employee or patient comes in and exposes a bunch of people. So um, I think that that has been one of our strategies as well is to, is to um, split people up and keep them apart because it, it, it's smart for a variety of reasons, not just to avoid the spread, but also to keep at least some of your staff um, intact you know, and, uh, and hopefully free from that exposure. Speaking of work from home, um, obviously it's helpful, like you say, for many reasons, and it's a, there's a big reason for implementing it, but a lot of the day-to-day -day sort of work environment happens because you're working together in the same place. Um, mm -hmm. All this working from home creates a lot of isolation. And what, I, what do you think is, if any, the impact of working from home on the dynamic of the team as a team? Right. Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, working from home um, has only been part of our solution, right? I mean, we still all go to the office at least a few days a week, um, you know, and as we've gotten to warmer weather and the prevalence has dropped, we spent the majority of the time in the office in, in August, at least, and we'll see how the fall goes, if we can continue to spend time in the office together or if we're going to have to go back to, you know, more spacing out, you know, more social distancing. But I think, you know, it, it's challenging to a certain extent. We've always been um, an organization that has been connected electronically. Um, you know, having 10 or 11 offices spread out around the state, um, we are not all together in, in one place almost ever. Um, the doctors do spend a day, a month together, but that's uh, as part of a, you know, an administrative meeting, not um, taking care of patients. So we're very much connected with email and with you know, phone calls and with Zoom. Um, to begin with, even before the pandemic, that was part of our day-to-day -day life. So we were already, um, you know, set up for that at the beginning. We were in a good position to move forward because we weren't necessarily inventing something. We were just expanding something that already existed. Um, in my particular office, we tried to do Zoom meetings, um, you know, once a month or once every three weeks where all the staff got on, whether they were in the office or working from home, and try to just you know, talk about what was happening um, give everybody the opportunity to express their concerns and their frustrations. And, and there were plenty of frustrations going through it, not knowing what was going to happen and, you know, with all the uncertainty, but we managed to get through it. And I think that um, our staff that's come through with us on the other side, really, you know, we feel very, very um, close and we feel like, you know, going into the fall and the uncertainty that colder weather is going to bring, um, that it's going to serve us well as we um, try to, to navigate the next few months. In terms of the frustration you mentioned, and it, it obviously arises when things are changing so much and there's so much that's just not in our control. Um, from a, I guess, management perspective, how do you handle, how do you explain to everybody when something, you implement a change and a week later or sometimes the next day, that changes, especially in the very beginning when it was March, April, and things were changing almost daily um, in terms of what your policies are, uh, well, I mean, I think number one, first and foremost, is just to be upfront with them, right? So uh, I think 
the most effective communication strategy is to be open and honest, right? And so telling people, listen, I don't know what next week is going to bring, you know, I don't know where we're going to be, but these are where we sit right now. These are the decisions that we have to make. And, and ultimately you may not like it, but it is what we have to do to get through the next week. Right. And we'll see in a week where things are and we'll reevaluate and reassess. And that was a huge part of this was that we were constantly reassessing, not just every day, but every hour. Right. And, and frequently we would say something in the morning and then by the afternoon that would change. Um, and so um, encouraging um, encouraging the employees to understand that this is this is such a dynamic um, environment that this is something that has no precedent, right? It's not like we have a playbook that we can turn back to the viral pandemic of five years ago, right? No, it hasn't. We've never had anything like this before uh, in our in our careers, and so. Um, you know, I was very upfront with people saying, listen, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know um, how we're going to handle this, but I know that my my goals are to uh, keep the practice moving so that we can take care of patients and to keep everybody safe and not necessarily in that order. Right. So patient safety, employee safety always had to come first. And I think that we we really did prioritize um, keeping people safe uh, despite what was happening, especially early on and, and trying to you know, understand what the, the risks were, what the options for reducing those risks are, and then, um, you know, just taking it one day at a time. And I think the more that we communicated with our employees, the better off we were, because that communication let them understand that this was not an easy situation to be in. And I think our employees wanted, they wanted to continue taking care of patients. They wanted to stay open as a practice. You know, they didn't want to, um, you know, to be um, furloughed or shut down like a lot of other people were. And so, um, you know, to their credit, they worked extra hard and they covered extra shifts and they uh, sometimes went to locations that weren't their primary location if we needed help. And the employees were phenomenal. You know, we would not have made it through um, March, April, May if our employees weren't dedicated to taking care of patients and dedicated to the practice. That was another thing I wanted to touch up on. The, the idea that you're saying people work more or harder. And that's, that's another thing that the, you know, before the pandemic, we all worked at what we thought was our hundred percent, um, generally our 110%, some would say. Um, and then this happened and then this took out, let's say, especially if you're in a leading position, this now takes up a significant amount of your work time to just handle this and learn about this and deal with this, which was never in the book before. So suddenly where you had 100% of your time to delve into everything else, now you have 80, 70% of your time or whatever's left after you deal with COVID. Um, how do you adjust to COVID as a distractor from your regular work life? Well, I don't know that I have the answer to that question. I think <laughs> mostly it just involved working more. Um, you know, I think in some ways, um, there, there's no easy answer to that. We, you know, we, we definitely had to carve time out of schedules for, for people who had administrative responsibilities. And, you know, there was a slight dip in patient volume, especially early on as patients were unsure. Um, and so we had a dip just like everybody else. And that also freed up some time. So, you know, I think that that has been, um, you know, uh, that has been less and less as patients have returned back to the office. Um, since June, really, we've been, you know, moving ahead, full steam ahead. Um, but you, you have to find the time to um, to step back and, and look at what's happening and look at the latest CDC guidance and look at what's happening in our state and and really understand um, 
what are the issues and, and what are the choices that we have to make and, and try to see as far ahead as you possibly can, understanding that um, you know, we're going to have to adjust and we're going to have to react to, to what happens based on something that could change within a day or two days even. Um, so we've been very, very fortunate from that point of view that, um, that we've had a great team of uh, managers and, and leaders who've been able to help us navigate this. But you know, early on in the COVID crisis, we were having a, a noon phone call every single day with all of the important managers trying to figure out, okay, what do you guys know? What are you guys worried about? What are you hearing from your staff? How do we, um, how do we prepare for um, what's next? Um, and I think that it, um, it paid off in the end because we were able to maintain um, you know, our, our, uh, our practice and to keep uh, everybody as safe as possible. In terms of communicating, you were mentioning with with employees and with your staff and everything, the other managers. Um, mm-hmm. There's another link in the chain, kind of of patient care that is the the, the mm-hmm. refer the referring doctor, right? The OBGYN that refers you a patient, and yep. you have your protocols for when you want to test patients before they come in and how mm-hmm. these works. How was the communication between you and the referring OBGYNs and the referring physicians to convey all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the OBGYNs themselves, I think, were in a very different situation from the reproductive endocrinologists, right? We're office-based. We are dealing with elective type of procedures, although we can argue about how elective they are in, in some ways. But at least we have more of an opportunity to um, cancel cycles or keep people home if if there's you know illness or exposure. Um, the OBGYNs were really on the front lines dealing with you know, pregnant patients, but not just pregnant patients, but sick pregnant patients walking into the hospital and other things like that. So they were in a much different place, I feel like, early on, especially. Um, you know, we tried to offer whatever support we can. And, you know, many of us have personal relationships with those OBGYNs. We also have um, uh, physician liaisons who are basically um, tasked with uh, communicating to OBGYN offices. And, you know, they also moved online. So they did um, uh, as much communicating with office managers to find out what was happening in their offices, what they needed, if there's anything that we could provide them in terms of support. Um, I think the OBGYNs were um, very quick to adapt. And you know, while they um, uh, you know, managed to get through the early part now, the majority of them are, are back to full, um, you know, full schedules and, and you know, doing routine annuals and other things like that that they weren't doing early in the pandemic. And you know, I think that they're, they're actually very supportive of us remaining open throughout this time because those patients would be uh, lost. Those infertility patients, you know, might be looking to see their OBGYNs if we weren't around to take care of them. And, uh, you know, I think we took care of plenty of early miscarriages and even a few ectopic pregnancies that OBGYNs would have had to take care of if our offices were closed. So um, I think from that point of view, uh, the OBGYNs have been supportive of us throughout this process as well, and and we had one of our um, one of our uh, attendings, Jamie Morris, presented at the grand rounds in her hospital, where um, she presented she presented all the strategies that we had used and implemented to try to stay open and maintain patient and employee safety. And at the end of it, she she um, received so many questions and um, compliments from the the general OBGYNs in the in the audience, saying, "Wow, I can't believe you guys were able to do all of this." Uh, and stay open and, and you know, continue to take care of patients. You know, that's great. That's amazing. You know, granted, it was a Zoom grand round, so it wasn't exactly a <laughs> in-person type of thing. But it's it's definitely um, been uh, well received by the OBGYNs in the area.
Good. In terms of adaptation as well, you were mentioning all these different things we've adapted to. One of the things is you were saying that it's a very, you already had a very sort of computer-based practice and you already had a lot of this technology implemented. You already had virtual meetings uh, before any of this happened. Um, has there been any adaptation of the of the infrastructure in terms of the EMR and things like that to be able to have remote access, uh, to be able to work from home more, to kind of streamline this a little more? Right, right. I mean, as I said, so we pretty much had most of this already set up. You know, we've had remote access for years. So for the last you know, 10, 12 years, we've been able to log in and, and use the EMR from home, which has been um, very helpful. I think the challenge is, was that not every employee had access to, um, you know, to those um, resources. And so we had to scale up a bit. Um, you know, we ultimately decided to um, use the Zoom platform, which everybody else had, had been using. We were using a different um, platform beforehand. And so there was a little bit of adjustment there. We were actually able to integrate the Zoom, um, uh, you know, the, the actual Zoom um, APIs into our EMR. So our electronic medical record is homegrown. We, you know, we built it ourselves. We have an engineering team that maintains it. And so they were actually able to, you know, um, uh, link into the back end of Zoom so that from our EMR, you could schedule the, the patient um, appointments without going out to the Zoom application, and you could actually start your telehealth appointments from within the EMR. So um, that allowed a little more um, effective streamlining of the processes, you know, um, for staff and for um, providers to be able to, um, to access their, their Zoom schedule within the EMR as well. Um, I think that... Uh, for the most part, patients were really, um, really great about it. And I think most of them were working from home anyway. So <laughs> um, it was very convenient for them. Um, and I think what it showed us is that there's a lot of viability in telehealth, especially um, in this type of world where some patients really do um, need a little more uh, information up front, a little more education. You know, they've been on the internet. They're not quite sure what to expect from an in-person visit. And sometimes um, that can that can be overwhelming, but to be able to do um, you know a telehealth consultation from your home and it doesn't involve driving back and forth to the office or taking time off from work um, and and to, to sort of get some of that upfront information and to have the expectation set for you about what what's involved in an infertility workup and and you know what treatments are involved is it you know there's patients out there who think that. Uh, the only thing available to them is IVF. And if they don't want to do IVF, that we're going to kick them out of the office, right? So um, obviously that's not true. And, and being able to get some of those um, patients to do a telehealth consultation, which is a lot less intimidating, a lot less threatening, um, I think has been very, very helpful. And, and a lot of those patients have um, you know, expressed that saying, you know, well, I, I put this off for so long, you know, until the pandemic and now there's telehealth and it seemed like, well, I should, you know, take advantage of this opportunity. Maybe this is a positive that can come out of a negative and, and to be able to understand that they have more options than they previously assumed um, has been really great. So it sounds like throughout everything, um, you've been you've been through a lot, but you've handled it pretty well. Um, where, um, what is your opinion? This is just obviously your personal opinion, but how, what do you think, how long do you think this will last? Will we go back to normal? Will it be normal like before normal, before everything happened? Or will it be normal like new normal? Right. Well, that's, that's the phrase, right? The new normal is what we've all been saying. Um, 
you know, my, my guess is as good as anyone's, but I think that, you know, with the pace of vaccine development and a few other things like that, we would, you know, be, be hopeful that sometime next spring, early summer, that we might see, um, you know, um, at least the majority of individuals have access to vaccines and whatever that means for, for herd immunity, et cetera. Um, I think masks will be with us for a little while, you know, whether it's another 12 to 18 months, probably until people feel more comfortable. Um, it's going to be a slow transition, I think, for people to to leave it behind, especially here in New Jersey. I don't know about the rest of the country, but it was um, it was the kind of thing that um, was was incredibly um, uh, frightening to a lot of patients and, and to a lot of staff. The sort of the way the virus snuck up on on the state and um, you, know, uh, you know hospitals that were full, ICUs that were running out of ventilators, those kinds of things. I, I don't think that this is going to you know be easily forgotten. Um, probably in a few years, we'll look back at this and say, wow, can you believe we you know, survived that and stayed open throughout the whole process? But, um, you know, I think that timeline, 12 to 18 months is probably um, my best guess for a return to, to what's normal. Um, and, and normal will always be a little bit different, you know, and I think that, um, you know, uh, people will probably be more comfortable wearing masks in the future than they've ever been. Um, and I, I think that that's that's probably not a bad thing in in certain situations. What what do you think we'll keep from all of this? What do you think when we when we do go back to this normal or new normal? Um, what do you think are things we learned that are not just good for when we get the next pandemic, if we do, and then we will have a precedent that we can base things upon? But what do you think we will keep for just daily operation, regular stuff? Right. I, I think to me the most the most um, striking thing that has come out of the pandemic has been that patients really do not want to wait. You know, infertility care is not elective to them. And to tell somebody that you have to put your dreams of having a family on hold um, is is not something that goes over well with, with patients. And, and sure, there's some that will, um, you know, that will always be a little hesitant and be cautious. But the majority of our patients, after about three or four weeks of the pandemic, said, well, this thing isn't going anywhere and I'm not going to wait. And they showed up back in the offices pretty quickly and they wanted to move on. They wanted to continue their treatment. They wanted to continue their care. And they were so appreciative that we stayed open throughout the pandemic. You know, the, the Internet has connected the infertility community across the whole country, across the whole world. And, you know, people were hearing reports from their um you know, internet acquaintances around the country that their clinics had closed, that their clinics had shut down, and that they were essentially abandoned in the middle of a cycle. Um, and the fact that we didn't do that to them, I think, really, really uh, resonated with our patients. And and I can't tell you how many compliments and how how much appreciation we've received in the in the last six months from patients who um, really understood that you know we stayed open for them to to sort of keep the keep the the momentum going. And and I was surprised as, as anyone that patients really, really wanted to come. They really wanted to come in and get their ultrasounds and have their retrievals. And, um, you know, they were not, um, they were not willing to wait. And I think that that is, um, that that's a testament to the infertility community and, and how important it is to have a child, how important it is to, to add to your family. And, um, you know, patients are, amazingly resilient and you know they've shown us time and time again in the last few months that that they're willing to do whatever it takes um and i think that i'll i'll take that with me as we move you know from this pandemic into whatever comes next 
um, how important it is for patients and how important my job is to help those patients on their journey. It's a valuable lesson for sure. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Molinaro. Oh, thank you, Andres. It was a pleasure to be with you and to have a chance to talk about these things. And, um, you know, I just, I hope that um, the day comes where we'll all be able to meet in person again soon. <laughs> this has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.